0: Welcome to this episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Givan of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today's guest is John Rusa, an associate professor of history at the University of British Columbia. He is the author of Pretext for Mass Murder, the September 30th Movement, and the Suharto Coup d'État in Indonesia, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2006. In this book, uh, which is really the definitive account of the confusing, mysterious, and often perplexing events of Indonesia in 1965, he covers the the events that led to the downfall of Indonesia's founding president, Sukarno, an anti-imperialist who sought to combine the forces of nationalism, religion, and communism. And he looks at the initial rise of the authoritarian general Suharto, ruled Indonesia for 32 years, a period of far-right military dictatorship known as the New Order. As part of Suharto's overthrow of Sukarno, he launched and directed a massive campaign of arrest, detention, torture, and mass murder of millions of Indonesians. We don't have the exact number, but somewhere between 500,000 and a million people were killed, and possibly an equal number sent to brutal prisons throughout the sprawling archipelago, with Buru Island being the most famous. Prisoners worked for years as slave labor. Even after their their release, they were subject to official repression and were treated as social pariahs. uh, Even their children, the children of former prisoners, faced discrimination. Allegedly, this wave of violence was directed at the massive Indonesian Communist Party, the PKI. But in reality, scores of other leftists, including feminists, labor organizers, and artists, fell victim to the bloody purge. Today we'll be talking about Professor Russo's new book, Buried Histories, the Anti-Communist Massacres of 1965-1966 in Indonesia, also published with the University of Wisconsin Press this year, 2020. This is a carefully crafted study of these events. Based on decades of interviews and archival research, this book is a welcome addition to the growing scholarly work on what some have termed a political genocide and what a 1968 CIA report called one of the worst mass murders of the 20th century. John Rusa, welcome to New Books in History. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I just have to say, for, for me personally, it's a real honor to have you on the podcast. Not only because I've been following your work for years and, and think very highly of it, but also just on a personal note, uh, my discovery as a teenager in Honolulu of the history of Indonesia in 1965 is what inspired me to become a historian and as an undergrad. I wrote my senior thesis on the massacres. Now, as my career unfolded, I wound up spending some 25 years reaching, researching colonial Vietnam, but now I'm returning to Cold War Southeast Asia. And I'm, I, I'm delighted. I'm not sure if delighted is the right word, but I'm very very happy that the, the historiography of 1965 is finally really starting to mature. And this book is an important contribution to that. Um, so let me start by asking you how you came to be a, uh, a specialist in this period of Indonesian 1965, and really what is one of the, the darkest periods in Indonesian history? I guess um, my sort of career path
1: was the mirror image of yours. That is my start was in South Asian history. It was in a different field. It wasn't in Southeast Asian history. Um, and yet I wound up there in the end. If you started with Indonesia, I ended with Indonesia. <laughs> that is, I, um, as a grad student in the 1990s, I was studying South Asian history. Um, but I started visiting Indonesia because my wife is from Indonesia. And that was in the mid-1990s. And her brother um, became a political prisoner in 1996. And so in 1997, 1998, I was visiting the, him in prison in Jakarta. And there I met with all the political prisoners being held in that prison, which included Xanana Gusmao, who is now, um, you know, his role in East Timor has changed over the years, but he's pretty much the sort of, he was the head of the resistance uh, at that time. Um, to the Indonesian occupation, and I met political prisoners who had been held from the late 1960s um, and even from 1965, uh, who had been affiliated with uh, the Communist Party or the September 30th Movement. So I sort of just got a quick crash course in Indonesian history in the mid 1990s, and it became really um, a kind of fascinating for me and also um you know something that i had noticed while taking a minor in southeast asian history um at the university of wisconsin was that the literature on the events of 1965-66 was really underdeveloped and so as soon as i had the chance i mean i was thinking already in the mid 1990s i was thinking okay this is this is an important topic <laughs> and if I have a chance to work on it, I will. And so um, the chance came in, um, in 2000 and so uh, Harto designed in 1998. Um, I had worked in East Timor in 1999 at the time of the referendum as an electoral observer. And um, so in 2000, I was able to start this kind of of oral history research on it. And um, it it was just out of that that I was able to um, um, sort of make myself a specialist on it. It wasn't something that I had really planned on in graduate school. And uh, that really, you know, I, I wasn't... Uh, I was, in terms of Indonesian history, I was a, still a kind of novice, but I was sort of training myself. As right. I was, so,
0: in the in the nineteen nineties, when you were in the prison, there were still prisoners from nineteen sixty five, some thirty years later in the prison.
1: Yeah, there were three of them, um, and I befriended all of them. Um, and although I didn't become that close with um, the more the famous. One amongst them who was uh, Colonel Latif, former Colonel Latif, who had been involved in the September 30th movement. Um, by that time, he had already had a stroke and had difficulty speaking. Um, but there was also a sergeant who had been part of the September 30th movement, Bunkus, and another man who had been part of the uh, PKI's uh, Special Bureau named Asep Suryaman. And um, so I spoke with Bunkus and. Asap Suriyaman in later years, as soon as Suharto fell, let's see, they were released. um, As I remember, is in 1999, Um, and my brother-in-law too was released um, around then as well after Suharto's fall.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a fascinating sort of career trajectory for you. That's very unusual, (laughs) I'll say.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a matter of sort of the meetings with activists and the in Jakarta and meetings with ex-political prisoners and with current political prisoners, that became sort of my school for Indonesian history.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So let's start with some of the terminology and there's an active and and sometimes heated scholarly debate as to whether or not we should use the term genocide to talk about the mass murders in Indonesia in 1965 and 1966. And I I teach courses on this and my graduate students and I debate this back and forth. And to be honest with you, I change my mind uh, maybe twice a week on this subject. Um, uh, So I don't really have a a dog in this fight, so to speak. Um, But where do you stand on the terminology? I mean, do you, do you you even find the debate worthwhile and and could you explain to the readers sort of what's at stake in this, this debate as to whether or not Indonesia 65 was a genocide or not?
1: Um, it's not a big priority for me, um, partly because I my interest is really trying to figure out um, how these killings occurred and what kind of killings they were. That is, um, so in some ways, to have a debate over exactly how to call this event. Presumes that we know what the event is, and there's a there's a lot of things about this event that I'm calling it sort of one big event um, that are really really obscure and that people don't agree on, and um, even scholars really don't of specialists on Indonesian history don't have a good sense about. So, for instance, the key issue of terminology for me is. Um, to move beyond just this term mass killings uh, because I'm calling them mass disappearances with mass killings. We get the sense of, um, you know, villagers rampaging in the streets, killing their neighbors, that kind of thing, Um, or um, or, a riot. And in cities, riots in cities where people are coming out of the uh, neighborhoods, the kampongs, and uh, just massacring people. Um, And that, you know, sort of along the lines of what happened in 1998 in Jakarta and some other cities with these urban riots, um, we don't get a sense of how these killings were actually uh, killings of detainees And that's one of the main points of the book is to show that these, when we talk about mass killings, what we're actually talking about are executions, uh, extrajudicial executions of detainees who hadn't even been charged with a crime, but just taken out of prison in truckloads and then massacred. And then their families were never told what happened to them. And um, in the public, usually was not informed as well. So, I mean, it wasn't completely secret. It was what I call an open secret. But still, this was, um, you know, a a largely secret operation, such that there was great confusion about who was killing, or or sort of who was killing whom, who were the victims, what happened to the the victims, uh, where the graves were, where the bodies were. Uh, and so forth. So that that's sort of my concern uh, in the book. And ultimately, I think you can call it a genocide, even if it doesn't strictly follow the UN definition. Again, so it depends on how you define genocide, really. Um, and you you know it can be a political genocide, a politicide. Um, I mean, I'm not too concerned about it, but I am concerned is that we we do integrate the this event that happened in Indonesia with the, a global history of genocide, mass atrocity, whatever you want to call it, so that we're not just sort of saying, oh, well, this isn't a genocide, so we don't have to compare it to the Armenian genocide <laughs> or any other genocide in history. We'll just this is something uniquely Indonesian, and it was kind of inscrutable and people just did it because well that's Indonesia is some sort of undeveloped uh, mm-hmm country that this is where violence is normal or something
0: yeah i mean there's a lot of sort of orientalist mythology around uh 65 66 which um you which i think you touch on several times in the book i mean the you know this idea of oh well you know indonesians just go amok and it's something you know in the you know i'm using scare quotes here but some darkness in the malay soul or something yeah you know, it's yeah that and um not treating the perpetrators as rational actors
1: yeah yeah, and and not uh, looking at the victims, not understanding what the victims too were were thinking about at the time, how they were strategizing, how they understood their situation. And so if you um you know take away all of this these accretions of uh upon the Orientalist lens upon on Indonesia, um as possible to see. Indonesia is very much you know, fitting into patterns that exist uh, er- everywhere else in times of of mass violence or um, mass atrocities.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your work uh, makes this case sound much more like the Khmer Rouge than other representations of Indonesian violence that I'd seen before. Um, this idea of, you know, killing detainees, I mean, that's very much like the violence uh, uh, and the executions uh, centered around tool slang, the, um, the Khmer Rouge uh, genocide or a torture center that was what's now the Genocide Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I mentioned before, and as you mentioned, you know, there was for decades, it was relatively little scholarly work on um, uh, 1965. And now there's a series of, you know, really excellent books. Um, yours, um, Jeffrey Robinson's book, Annie Pullman, Kate McGregor and Doug Kamen, Vincent Hearman, Ariel Harrianto, and Jess Melvin um, from Scholars. In addition to that, there's a recent book by the journalist Vincent Bevins, and the the films, I mean, they're really incredible films by Joshua Oppenheimer, that the act of killing and the look of silence. And also a, a film that's probably less well-known by Robert Lemelson, 40 Years of Silence. Um, so just in in the past, I don't know, eight Really, eight years, ten years, um, there's been this sort of flourishing of all this work. And so, why is this happening now, 40, 50 years after the events in question, and why didn't it happen sooner? Well, um, I think
2: all of these works are really based
1: upon um, research that has only begun after 1998. So It's just been a kind of accumulation of material as um, scholars are able to devote more time to it and uh, interview more people from the time, uncover documents here and there. Um, So in a sense, this book is overdue. I had planned it (laughs) to come out a long time ago. some of the interviews go back 20 years um and but it was it was very difficult to write about disappearances that were meant not to be known i mean these these um my earlier book was about an event that was um that was as you said mysterious the september 30th movement uh but still there was it was sort of one particular event and much about it was known and there was there's a fairly large number of people who had written on it and had opinions on it and um so it was a little bit more manageable actually to write about that but with the this book is about the killings that happened after that and given that the killings were largely these disappearances um it's just very difficult to study those um, when you you have to uh, you know triangulate information. You have to be able to get some cooperation of the information that you get, and that's that's often very difficult to do. And so there's a lot that of stories that I have that I I just wound up not putting in the book because I didn't feel confident enough in them. And um, the even though you know there sort of stories that I, I think are are true, but I just didn't want to um, put in, maybe I'll find some other way of, of talking about them. Um, but think about, you know how these disappearances occurred, where uh, there are people being held in prison, hundreds or thousands of people being held in a prison, and then they're called one night. Um, you know, 40, 50 people put onto a truck and then taken out, massacred in a kind of remote place, uh, put in a mass grave. There's very few witnesses left to tell the story. And sometimes, you know, we only get a stray witness, somebody who happened to be in the truck uh, to help out with the digging of the grave. Or... Um, a local person who had been involved in digging the grave um, or some a prisoner who happened to escape. That's actually in um, the look of silence. One of the people who talks about the killings is somebody who, who had managed to duck out uh, as the prisoners were being marched to the um, execution site. And so it, the perpetrators haven't been forthcoming in saying, this is what we did. And Joshua's Oppenheimer's films are one of the first places where you, we see the perpetrators talk about saying, this is what we did. Um, But in many other parts of Indonesia, you won't find perpetrators willing to be so open about saying, yes, we we received batches of prisoners and this is where we killed them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so And even in in his films, you'll notice there's a lot of perpetrators who are pulling back and saying no, 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 this isn't. We can't talk about this, or um, so, or the family members denying it. Um, So disappearances, by their very nature, are meant to defy historical investigation. You know, and since Suharto stayed in power for 32 years we're talking about events that occurred so long ago that it's, it's really difficult to get reliable information
0: about them. Right. So, so can you tell us a bit more about your research methodology under these circumstances? I mean, the, the archives are to say the least, more than a little difficult to, to gain access to, although you do have some archival um, uh, work in here and it's it's mostly oral testimonies. uh, Some of which are very, very powerful um so what what kind of archival work can be done and um and and also how do you do oral histories in this setting um yeah. that is that is so fraught
1: yeah um well I could speak for a long time on this, so I'm trying to figure out how to say something succinct um I guess I'll just describe what what uh, I did and um First, I worked with a team of Indonesian researchers, and um, these were peers of mine, um, as well as uh, some younger people who um, had been involved in working with the victims of uh, the 1998 riots in Jakarta. So um, it wasn't really my Research That is, it was a collective project, and having that many people involved was really crucial because, uh, you know, for instance, one of the researchers lived in a kampong in Jakarta, and uh, we started by interviewing his uncle, who was a uh, former political prisoner, and he, he didn't know exactly what happened with his uncle and it was just in the course of the interviewing that he learned a lot about how his uncle had become a political prisoner. Uh, We interviewed a fellow selling herbal drinks in front of the cinema who had been a former political prisoner. Um, We interviewed uh, a fellow in the neighborhood who was uh, making fried, selling fried bananas from a cart. He had been a former political prisoner and so it was sort of just beginning with relatives and friends and acquaintances of the people who were part of this research team. There were about 10 of us, um, uh, our friends. Um, I, I had known ex-political prisoners um, from the first time I'd come to Indonesia, actually, and, um, I met Pramoria Natatur in 1995. And um, so, I, yeah, who's a, a well-known Indonesian writer. and. Um, so there were other political prisoners, the ones I had met in, in the prison, in Chippinong prison, that were being held up until 1998 or nine. So um, part of it was a kind of a snowball effect. And you know, we would ask these people, okay, what to do. And at this time, in 2000, 2001, 2002, it was pretty open because the state was in such flux. <laughs> it was the, the political elite were really confused about what to do after Suharto had resigned, and there were these mass riots, and there was a lot of effort for, for political reform, and there were new journals starting up, and newspapers starting up all the time, and there was a lot of ferment. And um, at the same time, there were victims' organizations coming up, that is, people who had been political prisoners, were really coming out for the first time as well, informing their own organizations and debating about what they wanted and uh, getting into quite a lot of disagreements as well as to what their agenda should be. So we were able to take advantage of that as well by contacting these people who were willing to self-identify as victims and come forward to the public. And pretty much in every city and small town, in Java and Bali and Sumatra, there were at least a few people like this who are willing to sort of come forward, um, uh, in and appear in public, and say, "I'm a former political prisoner. Um, my rights have been violated. I would like to speak." So there was it was sort of the right time to do it as well, and. Um, But it wasn't the case where we could just come out and advertise openly and say, "We're looking for prisoners, former political prisoners, to interview." (laughs) Um, And the nature of the research was such that it had to be low profile. Still, even though it was kind of more open situation, there were still some uh, concerns about um, the security. and so we took a lot of precautions there to ensure uh, that the um, material would be anonymous and that they would use pseudonyms and for for people who did not want to have their names to be public
0: yeah yeah i mean that just can imagine uh a nerve-wracking that may have been and then also the the psychological consequences of you know, facilitating these oral interviews and asking people to revisit these, these times of trauma. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've, I've heard some really interesting stories about um, uh, the chances, uh, chance events people have had in the archives. Um, I think it's Jess Melvin in Aceh, who they, they accidentally gave her sort of <laughs> the dossier with all the, uh, that, that laid everything out. And um, um, I think we have a friend in common, Bonnie uh, Triana, uh, Historia Magazine, who as an undergraduate, uh, went into the military archives in Semarang and just <laughs> kind of talked his way into letting him see the secret documents. In the book, you mentioned that there's, um, uh, uh, were they possibly misfiled dossiers from Bali? or um,
1: mm. Well, I think um, what you're referring to is um, a collection that the National Archives has yeah, opened up yeah. that was from... Um, a military organization called KOTI and um, Commando Operasi Tertinghi that existed at that time. And KOTI, um, it turned out, became kind of a clearinghouse for documents that had been seized from PKA offices and the homes of of. Various uh, PKI leaders, and so I got the uh, the Excel spreadsheet with the list of the documents, and some of them are you know like a book by Lenin. (laughs) They would they would grab all kinds of stuff, but it showed that they were they were confiscating or looting, stealing all of these um, personal documents as well of. the prisoners and so it's all quite unethical um, there was a man in Bali whose home was raided by a mob and um, they stole all of his um, personal documents that were in the home and uh, they've some of those um, appear in the archives And there's personal correspondence with his daughter and so forth. And so there was that that I was able to access. Um, I I interviewed many of the members of his family in in Bali and many of his acquaintances. He was a well known person prior to 1965, uh, prior to his execution uh, in late 1965. So um, there were these sort of chants stray documents in the archives. But in general, there's, there's very little from the archives
0: that, that has come in, come to light. Mm-hmm. So the, the book is really organized into two parts. There's uh, the first three chapters, which are on the, um, the struggle for hegemony between the army and the PKI, uh, the army's ca- uh, propaganda campaign, and the use of torture. Then there are four case studies um, with a chapter on Solo or Surakarta, two chapters on Bali, and a chapter on Sumatra. So why did you choose to organize the book in this way? Mm. Um, um, The first
1: part, in the first part, I wanted to try to get at the subjectivity of the perpetrators. And I wanted to get at this problem of how these people could interpret what was going on around them as a war. Um, Because that's the the usual rendering amongst the perpetrators of what was happening. They were saying this was a time of war. Um, We were about to be killed. That this was self-defense. That they would have killed us if they had the chance. That's the this sort of common line, kind of universal line, and I wanted to make a claim about the truth of what happened on this score, to say that it was not a war, and that the the PKI was not engaged in a revolt, and that the very fact that so many of them could be killed was precisely due to the fact that they were not. Engaged in a revolt um, that they were loyal to the state that when they were arrested, they went to prison they thought that they would be you know released soon enough that uh, they did not they they felt that they had done nothing wrong, and they were surprised to find that they were grabbed from prison and executed in such large numbers. And so that was, um, you know, it's not a war when you're killing prisoners. That's, that's just not a war. And so I wanted to really um, go against this existing narrative that is so prevalent, um, not just in Indonesia, but outside of Indonesia as well, that this was some kind of war, or political conflict, uh, two sides going against each other, and you know one side happened to win, and that's you know, this is this is this is inexcus- inexcusable, right? You, you, the killing of prisoners is one of these absolutes that uh,
2: you know, if
1: it happened, you know, as a kind of rare occurrence. Within the general campaign of repression against the PKI, okay, you know there might be some, but this was systematic. This was this was across the country, from Aceh, um in the far west, to Flores in the far east. I mean, and the patterns are fairly similar too. This was, um, you know, that that people who did not have to be killed uh, were being killed, and. It's, it's, there's no way to justify it. This was an atrocity. I mean, that's sort of one of the main points of, of the book. And so the question there, though, is how the perpetrators could interpret it as a time of war when everything, else, when everything in their sort of, everything they see is telling them it's not. <laughs> but, you know, they're, but so the, this propaganda which is circulating within the army itself, and not just in the public. But the stories that are being told um, within uh, the army, um, and then being retailed in the newspapers to the public, um, that is that has an effect of helping to convince people that no, this is this really is a war. That even if you don't see it, it's there. Maybe you, you just it's not in your immediate environment. But this is a national level thing. The PKI is in the revolt. So I think it's important to, um, you know, it's the sort of general's knowledge among scholars is that this was propaganda. Um, I'm not saying anything fundamentally new, but I am trying to show just how absurd this propaganda was, how mistaken it was, but that also it helped to have this effect that it it, it was sort of, lubrication for the killing machine to get perpetrators to see, to, to think that um, the PKI was engaged in a revolt, that this was a war and they had to be on a war footing. It somewhat reminds me of today where, you know, peaceful demonstrators on the streets in the United States now um, are being in, it seen by some officials in Washington as terrorists, uh, as people who need to be suppressed with troops. Tom Cotton has called for the military to be come out. Trump was as well. The defense secretary said, this is a battle space. It's not a battle space. <laughs> these, are, these are peaceful protesters in the streets. And But this jump then from kind of a civil politics to war is what is interesting. And that's what I wanted to get at in yeah. chapters two and three.
0: Yeah. No. And, 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 you know, having, we're, we're recording this. Um, I don't know, these are COVID times. So I've lost all sense of date, but we're recording this June 8th. And so I was reading this uh, last week as all the events were happening. And uh, the, you know, the absolute insanity of the president talking about this Antifa boogeyman and, uh, you know, coming the president coming out against anti-fascists and, and well, which is just a, a loose collection of various leftist activists, which I would consider myself part of reading this book in that context uh, led to a few sleepless nights <laughs> and uh, the parallels today were just, um, you know, they're, they're terrifying. So, so let's get into the chapters. So the, yeah. um, the, the first chapter uh, you describe the conflicts between the PKI, the Indonesian communist party and the army. And um, I really like the way that you theorized it. You, you describe it as a Gramscian struggle for hegemony. Can you can you quickly explain this to us and expand upon this? Yeah, I'll try. Um, I guess a
1: key point that I wanted to make there in the opening chapter, in chapter one, was about the importance of guided democracy from 1959 to 1965. We're sort of setting setting the stage for a conflict between, between the PKI and the army, if you looked at Indonesia in 1959, you would not have predicted that sort of political conflict in six years would just be a kind of binary conflict between the PKI and the army. So there's a lot that's going on in guided democracy. Um, for the PKI, it becomes a really large organization that is. Up until 1959, um, it was the fourth largest party about. In central Java, it was the largest. Um, But in a lot of areas of Indonesia, it wasn't that powerful. Um, It didn't seem like this sort of massive political force uh, that it did in 1965. So there's a big growth of the PKI during this period. And then there's a um, greater penetration of the army into the civil society at the same time. The army creates what it calls a territorial command. And I put this in the first chapter and appears in the last chapter as well. And it's a kind of big theme of the book because it's something that's, it's, I don't know how unique it is, but it's pretty unusual to have an army organized like the Indonesian army where it has active duty personnel serving as a kind of supra-police force within the society. Um, so And it still exists today. And there's no signs that it's going to be removed either. There are some people today within the army who are reformers who are thinking, really, the territorial structure uh, or territorial command Uh, doesn't serve the military very well because it isn't really the military's business to be policing the society that, you know, the reformers are saying we should, military should be more professional. The army should get out of, uh, at least move, start moving in that direction, closing some of these commands down. Um, But the army is heavily invested in this existing system. And so it, it, continues to this day, even though the conditions for its uh, emergence at, back in the late 50s, early 60s, no longer obtain. So, I mean, it was meant, this territorial command, it was meant um, to uh, deal with the PKI. That was one of its main um, functions. That's how it was organized in the late 50s and early 60s as a kind of parallel to the PKI. And it really mirrored the PKI in many ways and set up its own um, organizations of, and promoted or anti-communist organizations to rival the PKI. Um, so that's when the, when the killings begin then in late 65, it's the territorial command. It's these army uh, personnel who are based in the villages, districts, the provinces. They have it's a, It's hard for me to explain quickly, but the territorial command is. You can see it as a kind of um, adjunct to the civilian administration. Imagine any civilian administration of a government, and then imagine just attaching at every level, a mil- an army officer.
0: To it, it's, like a, it's so, a parallel or a shadow yeah. apparatus. I mean, it,
1: yeah, I guess a parallel is better because it's it's not it's not in the shadows. It's it's up front. Uh, mm-hmm. It's there. Everybody knows about it, and um, so and, and it, and it
0: also opens the possibility for many officers to get uh, involved in local economic projects and and to mm-hmm. amass economic interests. Yeah, and that's a
2: big
1: reason why it continues is just because there's the funding that it provides for the army, which is, you know, not from the government. Um, so the, it, it means that the army has its own kind of, uh, of power uh, that any civilian president coming in has a really hard time going against this entrenched army, which has its own sources of funding.
0: Right. So, in, 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 in the fifty in the fifties and in into guided democracy, which is this period where the president Sukarno suspends suspends elections and he, he guides democracy. Um what what is the PKI strategy? I mean, is this is this like the Viet Minh? Is this uh is this an insurgency? Do they have a, a massive army? Are they training militias?
1: Yeah, so this is uh, what i was arguing about you know the gramscian character of the pki and i think you know it's kind of a shame that a lot of the literature on gramsci has been so eurocentric and hasn't considered the pki so because the pki everybody knows was you know the largest communist party by 1965 outside of the communist you know where there were communist states um And it was a peaceful, you know, organization of people that is peaceful, you know, it's, they didn't have an armed wing, I should say. Um, They would carry out strikes. Strikes involve a kind of contestation of, of, of force, but really it is, you know, protected, it's peaceful. Uh, can be considered a kind of civil conflict. It's not a military conflict. And um, the PKI used the term hegemony, the sort of classic Gramscian term, and um, saw by 1965 that it acquired a kind of hegemony by what it called a peaceful offensive, and that it was um, doing a really good job of putting Gramsci's ideas to work, even though there's no evidence that anybody in the PKI knew about Gramsci. But it was, it was, it followed very much a Gramscian playbook of, you know, organizing different sectors of society and creating kind of trenches where you have strong support for the party. There's a women's organization, a peasant organization, there's a students' organization, there's a youth organization. There's you know all these different kinds of organizations. The, the artists' organization, Lekra. were artists, um, and it allowed some autonomy for some of these organizations, uh, but it was sort of guiding the leadership of the different organizations. And then it was, um, it had its own newspaper. Um, it. Infiltrated some of the other political parties and got the other political parties to align with its agenda. So it was really, you know, and it had the president's ear. So it was moving in this sort of Gramscian, um, with a Gramscian agenda. And um, it was very successful in it. And so one of my sort of side pleas in this, or one of my, one point in that chapter is just to say, you know, if you're interested in Gramsci, you should
0: look at the PKI. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's great. And and yes, much, so much of the literature is Eurocentric and, uh, and the, the PKI is just such a remarkably different case study of what we think about in terms of communist parties during the cold war, especially in the global South because they not do not have a military arm. Um, They're, they're, want to stand in elections. They're actually probably the biggest losers with the suspension of elections because um, they yeah. are, they were doing so well. So anyway, so the, just to, to set the stage for those who are unfamiliar with uh, Indonesian history in 1950s, 1960s, you you have this in, increased sort of polarization between the, the PKI on the left and the army on the right. And the images of, you know, the, the cliched images, Sukarno's balancing these two, um, and then there's this event that's the subject of your first book um uh, on the night of September thirtieth uh, uh, a handful of generals are kidnapped and, and murdered and this is really an internal army affair we please let's not go into the details of it because it's so complicated. read pretext for mass murder it's it lays it all out very clearly like for this this complicated history and um almost immediately uh the army led by um what's really arguably an upstart general Suharto um, launches this anti-PKI anti-communist crusade and blames the PKI for the murder of these generals and a huge phantasmagoria of violent fantasies. Correct. Mm-hmm. So chapter two is about the propaganda that um, the army now directed by Suharto pushed out. Tell us about the pop propaganda machine. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought I needed to
2: spell it out in some detail, um, because the um, it, it's often
1: sometimes difficult to believe the kinds of stories that that they were telling in the in the media. you know, I have to sort of um I read through the two army newspapers day by day and um I cite uh, a lot of the articles just to create this this picture I want people to be able to see in some depth this the picture of this propaganda um, and just how crazy it was um and how m- mendacious it was as well um, but the another part of that is the chapters. Called uh, mental operations, and that was the term that the Indonesian army used. And this psy war was really a military operation, and so it followed definite protocols. It was sort of a very systematic thing. They had an idea, a sort of a narrative that they wanted to present, and so they organized this this mental operation in the same way that they would organize a, a war. Um, the way they would put soldiers on, into you know, a battlefield. So the army had total control over the media, and then it created this perception that everybody in the PKI had been part of the September 30th movement, um, was engaged in a revolt, and that they, they were evil, and they presented a mortal threat to all non-communists, and so all of a sudden, people who were your your next door neighbor, who you had always gone along with, all of a sudden they became the sort of um, uh, rabid animal, which is a term that a US official used for protesters recently. <laughs> that is, the dehumanization was very quick. And so you can imagine this happening in any state where the army is able to gain this position of having total control over the media and total control over
2: the state such that there's very, there's very little countervailing force to, to that operation.
0: So it, one of the um, aspects of the army propaganda that really stood out to me was the gender component and the vilification of women associated with the Communist Party uh, and the Gerwani movement. and get, Importantly, Gerwani is this women's organization that's actually not directly tied to the PKI. They're really more fellow travelers. Um, why, why was the gender aspect of this so important, and, and why, did, why was there this concerted campaign to vilify these women? Yeah. Well, I think uh,
1: Saskia Wurdinga has written... Um, insightfully about this so i won't say much but on on this particular sh- uh, score but the um, i think what's important to note is that it w- was a way of saying to the indonesian public look the pki has upended our our patriarchal norms it's a way of getting all the men in the country uh, to see the PKI as being um, a threat to their own power. Um, so it becomes not just sort of a threat to the state. The PKI is not just a political threat to the, the state, but um, really it's a, it's a threat to um, the patriarchal order. And, you know, the absurd thing was that uh, gurdwani were largely sort of middle class, lower middle class. It's hard to you know, give a clear cut class description of of Indonesia at the time, but they were sort of educated women who were engaged in uh, anti illiteracy campaigns and who were actually talking a lot about how to be a good wife. <laughs> they 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 weren't at all. Um, you know, there wasn't even a hint of the kind of um, behavior that the army was alleging um, so of course it's just that's just absurd and the pKI also as a as a party, had a reputation for being um, against womenizing that was a problem and that and people got kicked out of the party for that. Uh, there was a very prominent um, artist, one of the best painters in. Ever in Indonesia, uh, who was kicked out of the party because he uh, left his wife and um, started living with a, another woman, and um, that was that was against the rules. And it was it was clearly against. That was one thing that that party leaders would be investigated on. They were kind of a puritanical party in that regard. <laughs> they did not tolerate, uh, you know, flagrant kinds of. Um, of uh you know um, mm-hmm. well, it's called womanizing
0: yeah the and, it, and it's so shocking because if you go to uh see the the national ideology monument the monument you see in uh, the, uh the, the museum that commemorates this the the image of pki women is as sexually loose their hair is down their the, in in the, this very famous statue, one, one of them literally has her butt sort of coming out of the screen or out of the the, the the Bas Relief. And there's another that has her her top is very low, is completely at odds with what actually was the sort of uh, the cultural bearing of these individuals. And so that was
1: part of the mental operation. Yes. And, and those images were like central, right at the center <laughs> of that monument of the
0: Bas Relief. Yeah. And, and, and the monument's still there. It's still there to this day. And is, is, um, you know, it, 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 it was well, the sacred national ideology monument. It is, it is above reproach. You may not criticize this. Yeah. Uh, so chapter three, um, which for me personally was the most difficult chapter to read. You discuss, you discuss the systematic use of torture and you make an argument. I think many scholars of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia will find actually quite valuable. Um, when they try to make sense of the kafka esque transcripts from the tool sling uh, genocide uh, torture and, and interrogations um and if if I st- understand it right you you hold the the torturers the army torturers were t- trying to create put, put their dark fantasy into reality to make this to make their lies real by forcing people under torture to admit to these uh these absurd claims. Can you can you speak on this and and yeah. when, how, how you're not what, what you add to the sort of history of torture? Yeah.
1: So when we were um, conducting oral interviews with former political prisoners, um, the standard story was that at some point after their capture, that wasn't really official arrest, but maybe we can call it arrest. But after their capture or arrest, they would be interrogated. And the interrogation, you know, was premised on the idea that um, the PK was engaged in a war; that it was was engaged in a rebellion, an armed rebellion, and therefore everybody had to be interrogated so that the army would know where the enemy was, where the guns were, what the what their plans were, Um, and so they would. Interrogate every single uh, person that they detained. And torture was standard operating procedure. It wasn't used on every single person, but it was standard operating procedure. So, this, what it meant though, was that then that idea that the PKI was engaged in rebellion became confirmed because the interrogators were forcing people to give information as if the PKI was engaged in war. So I look at torture not as an extraction of information, but as an imposition of information. And so I think that we usually hear critiques of torture along the lines of, well, it doesn't work. Um, it doesn 't but that 's premised on the idea that it's not a good way of extracting information, but actually it 's a very good way of imposing information and <laughs> of getting the story that of of confirming the kind of of narrative that you have to understand what 's going on in the world and uh, one of the sort of theoretical points in the chapter is a you know, critique of Elaine Scarry's work on, on torture, which is actually I, I think very highly of, but um, and I think it, it has a lot of uh, validity. But torture is is she thinks is just about um, getting sort of revenge or or having the power to inflict pain upon the enemy, somebody construed as the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, as compensatory uh, violence, um, compensating for the lack of state power um, that had occurred outside the torture room. but um, and, and she treats the verbal exchange as not that important as whatever information, the information is just a kind of excuse to inflict pain. Um, but in this case, the Indonesian army took the information from the torture chambers and circulated it and said, here's proof. Here's proof that the PKI is engaged in a revol- revolt. Uh, here's here's proof that, um, you know, what, what we were claiming is right. And so they would use transcripts from uh, interrogation sessions that were accompanied by torture uh, as though this was, you know, proof um, of of their claims. So that the, in a sense, you know, the imposition of
0: information um, worked really well <laughs> in, in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I think that's a really important uh, sort of compliment to say David Chandler's book on uh, voices from S21 about the, mm-hmm. The Cambodian uh, torture center. And and he's sort of perplexed in the book. He's sort of perplexed. Like, why would they do this? They, they, they know this is all nonsense yet. They were forcing these people to say this nonsense, but it's again, it's to, it's to create this narrative that they're trying to, um, they're, yeah. they're, to create this narrative. Um,
1: yeah. And I think anytime like, the state does that and says torture is okay. And that this is, we're going to practice torture during interrogations they're sort of admitting that they don't care about the truthfulness of any information. And because they're just removing any standard that they have for deciding what is true and what isn't. When states, you know, we have to think about torture as this bureaucratic exercise. And you can see it in the Tulsang um, case as well, the S21 case as well in Cambodia, that. Um, it, it creates this feedback loop, a self-confirming feedback loop, where even if the state officials at the start said, well, we don't really know if this is true or not, they keep getting reports saying, <laughs> yes, the KGB is sabotaging rice production or something, you know? that there's this conspiracy that's, uh, of, of some teenagers that are opposed to us that we have to crush. Um, and they don't they can't tell anymore and this is you know what's true or not but any of these interrogation reports are kind of worthless in terms of trying to understand what's true or, or false and so um they 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 sort of it's it the torture
0: creates this self-confirming feedback loop i guess right yeah so the the next uh four chapters are your case studies. Uh, you look at um, uh, Surakarta, also known as Solo, two chapters on Bali, and then a chapter on sort of greater Greater Sumatra. Um, what, f- first off with Solo, uh, why did you pick Surakarta as a case study? What What's significant about um, uh, Solo and Central Java? Yeah, well, um, I should say that
2: within Solo, there was um, a really
1: good organization of victims that was doing a lot of work after
2: 1998. And um, my colleagues and I really enjoyed um,
1: working with them, getting to know them, talking with them. And we were able to organize um not just individual interviews, but also a kind of a one-day gathering of about sixty former political prisoners, who then had a kind of community discussion um, about the events that happened in the city, and you could, there were all kinds of um, different stories that came up there, and people could um, at that meeting um, uh, sort of. Correct one another, or complement one another to complement the information, add more information, confirm various parts of the story. So um, our interviewing in uh, solo um, became uh, sort of fairly rich, and but that's also because up until 1965. Solo and the area around it was really the most important base for the PKI. That is, there were districts there where um, the the mayor, the mayor of Solo, was pro PKI, um, and then the what are called the bupatis. um, our PKI members? There are a lot of members of the government, or officials in the government, who were uh, PKI supporters or PKI members. And the PKI in 1955, um, the national first national elections, won some of these areas by landslide, by you know with more than twice the number of votes as the nearest party, um, as the, the second ranked party. So, this was um, where there were a lot of people who had who supported the PKI. And so, one of the aims of that chapter was also to was to indicate how the PKI became popular. That um, um, it really was a kind of Central Javanese uh, phenomenon. The center of gravity for the party was in in Central Java, and so later when we Look at Sumatra. We see how there are these links back to to Java, to Central Java. Um, so it was the kind of area where being a communist was just considered normal. It wasn't like some strange fringe party at all. It wasn't. You know, this was
2: really well integrated into the society. And so the question is, how could if he did, how could the AI be, how could his members, a sort of Grumpsian struggle for
1: hegemony, have been so successful? And it's a question that I don't think the literature has really addressed all that well. And my book isn't, you know, sort of the final answer by any means on it. There's a lot more that could be said on this issue, but I did want to indicate something about, uh, and this is the kind of question that every political activist will have is to think, well, how, how could the party allow this to happen? Um, what was the party thinking at the time? And so I'm trying to show how people within the party In a place where the party was at its strongest, where ID, the head of the party, actually fled after the failure of the September 30th movement and was hiding in the area around Solo, um, that the Hormones there just had no inkling that this was going to happen. They were taken by surprise. Um, And another, there's another aim in the chapter there. I'm sorry, the, the chapter is probably too tries to do too much. But there's a big section there on the September 30th movement in Solo. And it's really, a, it's, you kind of need to read pretext just to appreciate the significance of that, of that section. Um, but there is a critique there of the Cornell paper, which was the sort of, for Indonesianists, the, the sort of famous um, um, essay written by Ben Anderson and Ruth McVeigh that said that really the September 30th movement was a movement of central Javanese military officers that the PKI really didn't know anything about. And so I'm showing from the view of a pro-PKI military officer, an army officer who was involved in the September 30th movement in Solo, um, that it really was coming out of the PKI Special Bureau. That the PKI special grow was was getting them to do these things, and they didn't understand, and that's sort of why the movement failed so well, so spectacularly. So there's a section there that's actually kind of confirming what I was arguing in pretext for mass murder.
0: So that's. Okay. All yeah. that but that that the uh, the surprise and that the that 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 they would be slaughtered was unimaginable to the rank and file PKI members, which is so. Such a powerful uh, uh, assessment finding from your from your case study of Solo. Um, so you've got two chapters on Bali, and you do a number of things there. And in the in the first one you look at sort of the general pattern of disappearances in particular, and the second chapter you focus on a, on a massacre. And one of the things that really stood out for me in these two chapters um, was that you argue for uh, adding a new category to sort of the. The, trini- the genocide trinity of victim, perpetrator, and witness. You talk about the importance of resistors, and you find these examples in Bali. Could you say something about that?
2: Yeah, so there were um,
1: the, the governor of Bali as well as the army commander within the territorial structure that covered Bali, the Kodam that was based in Bali. Um, these two officials were supporting Sukarno, and Sukarno was trying to prevent the mass killings from happening, and he was telling everybody who had listened to him not to kill, not to have this this allow the kind of killing that that suharto 's group was organizing so there was a duality within, within the state at the time, and so the pro sukarno officials were not following um, the um, um, sort of encouragement from Suharto's group in Jakarta to carry out mass killings. Um, so they wind up being overthrown. That is um, well, the governor is, is removed in early December and then the army commanders just bypassed and the Jakarta army high command, the general staff of Suharto, comes to Bali, and then they introduce troops from Jakarta and organize the slaughter with the quorum, which is one step below the kodam. And so the newspaper that was publishing in Bali at the time covered this fairly well, and then publishing a lot of the information from the army saying, okay, this is how this operation should go. This is who we should target. Uh, this is how we should proceed. Um, without saying we're going to kill anyone, but it's always, you know, crush the, uh, the PKI and the September 30th movement. So there were these people who were resisting, and it went down to the village level. So in Bali, um, there were the village heads who were also trying to say, trying to prevent
2: uh, the killing, and um, there were in one village that I studied.
1: Um, not only did the village head try to prevent the, you know, he he sheltered um, some of the PKI members or supporters within the village um, in his own compound. Um, when the army later came to the village and said, here's, you know, about a dozen detainees that we want you to kill and dispose of, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. We've already done killing. (laughs) We've had enough. So there were these kinds of
2: ways that people within the government could uh, resist. Yep,
0: and then in the... Your last case study on Sumatra, um, you're looking primarily at southern and sort of southeastern Sumatra. Um, You talk about how the massacres were really an assault on the unions. And um, this is an often neglected aspect of the history of 1965. So, could you say a bit more about how Suharto's bloodletting was a war on organized labor?
1: Yeah, thanks for that
0: question, because I do think this is an important point.
1: That is, we often look at these events as just a political matter between the PKI and the army um, and PKI and various anti-communist parties. Um, The PKI as it existed in in 1965 um, was as part of that Gramscian uh, struggle for hegemony had um, really taken control over a lot of the Uh, big unions and so the railway workers union the oil workers union um, and there was also a plantation workers union were all affiliated to the pki and the army had been involved in the years before 1965 um, in helping sort of plantation owners factory owners and managers um, undermine the pki so uh in October 1965, they just started rounding up all of these union activists who had been pretty powerful before them. And, you know, it's one thing that I don't think comes out in a lot of the histories about the violence, is about sort of what was happening before and how important these um, or how powerful uh, these unions were. Um, for Sumatra, what was the important industry was oil. I mean, that was a big, big foreign exchange earner for Indonesia. And that was, you know, Caltex was there, a lot of Shell was there, multinational oil companies were there, and they were facing oil workers' unions who really had a sense of power deriving from their participation in the national struggle for independence. And so that chapter is to indicate how, for workers in 1965, their reference is back to the struggle for independence, that they had been involved in that struggle and that they had a claim then to having rights in this new country of Indonesia, where they didn't have rights before, where they were not citizens of the state, where they were under racist uh, laws from the Japanese colonial period to the, uh, Jap- to the Dutch before them. So this was a kind of, you know, a, a sense amongst workers in the 1950s and 60s that they were really coming into their own for once. And then Suharto's crackdown on them represented a return to a lot of these colonial era systems of, of oppression. Where they were denied rights to organize altogether, there was no independent unionizing after 1965, and this whole story, I think, has to be fit within any kind of literature of genocide. That in genocide, we often don't deal with this kind of, um, you know, the sort of economics of of the genocide.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, 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 that, and I know there's a few parallels in East Java around um, sugarcane plantations and some of the sugarcane workers and the way their unions were crushed as well. So in the conclusion, you you lay out these three groups that are really responsible for the massacres. Uh, the Army High Command, Soharto and his his inner circle of generals. Um, the Kodam, the regional territorial commanders. And the civilian militias. Could you just say a few words on each and their, their various levels of responsibility and, and, and also their interactions? Yeah, so
1: as I see it, you know, the killings take place where there
2: is um, uh, a kind of what a level of uh, cooperation between these three. So the army high
1: command is not actually insisting to the army officers in every part of Indonesia that they have to kill. They're encouraging them to kill. They're inciting them to kill. The propaganda line says killing is okay. Um, They are intervening in certain places, like Bali, to have the killing take place. Um, But they're allowing quite a lot of places and on the island of Borneo, in Kalimantan, uh, in Sulawesi, um, some in West Java, even in West Java, um, to continue without mass killings of PKI
2: supporters. Um, So the Army High Command is is there with its pressure
1: on lower-level officers to kill. Um, but it's a lot is up to the Kodam commander. There are 16 Kodams are these are army regions covering the country, and it's up to the Kodam commander really to make decisions about whether the killing of detainees should take place or not. And this is where I do want to sort of orient our attention. What I want people to pay attention to is that there's a decision at some point of army officers, and I think the Kodam commander is the key one, but there is others to look at. Um, to say we're we're not going to just arrest people and hold them anymore. We're going to, all these people that we're holding. We're going to start killing off a lot of them. Uh, in Bali, we're going to kill off all of them. That was that was the line there. So the um, the military officials. Um, bear a key responsibility for making these decisions. Uh, the civilian militias, they can provide a kind of push to encourage the army to make a decision in favor of killing, as they did in Bali, as they appear to have done in, in West Sumatra and in Riel in uh, Sumatra. Um, but they're not the ones really making the decisions, and when they do go out and kill, it's it's not like they can kill a lot of people. That once you get, once you have this kind of mass killing, it really relies upon um, army officers who are in charge of the prisons to make this decision. Okay, we're going to kill off the detainees. Um, the civilian militias uh, play a key role in helping them when they're called upon to say we need help in, you know, the manpower to arrange uh, these killings. Uh, they help out. But I think um, their role has been greatly exaggerated in the existing uh, literature.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: In, in this final section you have on afterlives, you talk about the uh, the various attempts to revise the Suharto era narrative of 65 and, and the killings. Um, what? Uh, uh, the Indonesian scholar Joseph uh, Jakababa calls the uh, Lubang Buaya narrative, um, and you you note that these these attempts at uh, a more just, a more accurate, a more honest inquiry into this history keep getting crushed. Why is this happening fifty years after the events in question and some twenty two years after the fall of uh, Suharto?
1: Well, I guess the the easiest way to answer that is just. To to say the territorial structure, the territorial command of the army is still around. And this is all that they really know how to do is keep track of anybody talking about the PKI. So if there's some young students who want to have a discussion about my book, um, about Joshua Oppenheimer's films, about anything having to do with um, this, this history, um, the, there's always some army, local army officer, some, or you know, lower-level ranking soldier who's there who can uh, intervene and stop it. Um, that's what they're geared to do: is just pay attention to any kind of what they call communist activity within their area, even when it's not. So um, they they have a sort of Vested interest in keeping up this whole story about how the PKI is still around, still a danger. Um, they have these old senior citizens, you know, in their 70s and 80s who were former political prisoners meeting together, and their meetings get raided by the, by the army. Um, so, and they're still in the press these days. These issues of just over the past week, there've been a lot of stories about is the PKI rising again? Um, what's the evidence? Uh, there's a government official who's getting into trouble for discounting the um, you know the idea that the PKI is a is a threat. You know, and, and so there's it's still a live issue largely i think because the army wants it to remain a live issue the army has needs to justify this territorial command which i think and there's a lot of people in indonesia who think but can't say it uh that it's it's largely superfluous and that the indonesian army could become more of a kind of professional army it could withdraw from civil society and allow just sort of the regular workings of a government to continue with the civil administration and the police, um, that they don't really need to be there, but they sort of have to justify um, their, their presence uh, in this name. Just this past week, um, the president, uh, Jokowi, said, or one of his officials, his justice minister, said that um, he might issue an apology to the PKI. And this was something that Jacobi had been thinking about before, but he was sabotaged back in 2016. And that's one of the key issues in that final chapter, Afterlives, is how he was sabotaged and how he just sort of gave up on it. And I guess now that he's talking about this apology, he's feeling a bit more confident about his power now that he figures he can get away with this. Even though it's, it's all kind of ridiculous to talk about an apology to the PKI. The PKI doesn't exist anymore, and it's, it's it's an apology to everybody who was a victim of disappearances. I mean, I think that's the key issue that there has to be some acknowledgement in Indonesia of the disappearances. And you know, this book is actually meant largely for an Indonesian audience because it will have many more readers in Indonesia than it has elsewhere, and so there are, um, you know, particular arguments that I'm, I've crafted in a way to, because um, I'm thinking about an Indonesian audience. I'm not just thinking about an audience of fellow scholars, but this is going to become a kind of public property in Indonesia. So, and in doing so, I've also tried to think about the emotional impact of the book. So. Unlike pretext, this book I think has more of a kind of um, an effective side to it, and meaning a kind of an emotional side to it. Where I was trying to be pretty conscious about getting people to feel the horror of what happened, not just so to appreciate it analytically, and not just to say it, say that it's a horror, but through the personal stories that were presented to get people to feel this, this really was um, uh, a tragedy and that this, this is something that um, we can't just talk about in sort of political science terms, or I should say you know, sort of conventional political science terms of PKI and the Army and so forth. But um, I didn't want to be melodramatic about it or present it as purely just isolated cases of this individual going through a traumatic moment, but to integrate that um, that appreciation for the horror of what happened with the kind of explanation of, of
0: how that could occur. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you do that quite effectively. I mean, it is you know, some of the, in the title, buried histories, and then some of the the images throughout the book and what you conclude with this idea of these these bodies being under the soil and in thrown into the rivers and, and you know really in many ways just sort of haunting the history of and landscape of indonesia um so i i noticed in buried histories that there's relatively little about the united states great britain or australia and um and their the role of their intelligence agencies in these massacres and this would be in contrast to the famous Rampart's article from several decades ago, or the work of Peter Scott Dale, and even, you could say, Bradley Simpson's work, um, and then also you know, a recent book by uh, this journalist, Vincent Bevins. So what? how important was the role of the, C- of the USA and the, and the CIA in particular in this history?
1: Yeah, of course, it's very important. And I didn't write about it just because I thought that others have already written about it. and um, I was already doing quite a lot in the book, as it was. And so, um, but there is something I, I think I, I wish I had put in the book. I didn't quite know how to put it. But um, how, you know, one way in talking about the U.S., the role of the United States, um, I think a lot of times we, we sort of get the impression that the U.S. is ordering Suharto
2: or the army to do things. And I think the while the Indonesian army officers knew that this is what the US
1: wanted, um, they didn't do it just because the US was telling them to do
2: it. They did it because they wanted to um, prove to the US that
1: they deserved this money. That is, they were trying to serve the U.S. for their own interest in creating this new regime. And they, for this new regime that they were set up, led, being led by Suharto and the army, um, they, knew, they needed foreign aid and foreign investment. So I mentioned a little bit of this in the earlier book, on pretext, but um, there is a kind of element of, they're committing the killings uh, as a, as a way of sending a signal to the U S that is one of the reasons why the killing, which is is so unnecessary, so gratuitous, you know, that the, the army could have stopped at mass arrests, and in some areas they did. So, but I don't think all the killings can be explained just as a way of sending a signal to the U.S., but certainly some of that push was there. And there's a a document from the U.S. embassy mentioning that there was a fellow from Suharto's group that came to the embassy and asked them, so how much are these dead communists worth to you? What are you going to give us? We're killing the communists. You have to be pleased by this. And this was actually a kind of trick that the Indonesian political elite understood from the 1940s, from the late 1940s, when they attacked the PKI in 1948 and the U.S. helped them put pressure on the Dutch to withdraw. Um, The attack on the PKI in 1951, too, I think, was partly motivated by the idea of impressing upon the U.S. at a certain juncture in Indonesian-U.S. relations uh, that it deserved, Indonesia deserved U.S. aid. So there's always this sort of logic um, of attack the PKI in order to get help from Economico, from the U.S.
0: Yeah. So to to finish up here, and we have taken up a lot of your time, I really appreciate it. Um, But I just want to ask you a personal question. Um, I myself have worked on the history of violence and the the history of colonialism and and now working on it in uh, the Cold War era, and I realized that as I've you know, done research on these really horrific uh, uh, historical moments, there's a real psychological impact on me as a, as a researcher studying these subjects. Um, how do you as a researcher take care of yourself when you're dealing with some of the, the worst aspects of, uh, of human behavior? Well, I think actually in doing the research,
1: doing oral interviews, with the former political prisoners,
2: um, I felt what ennobled, meaning I felt like I was meeting people who were, had had faced the worst and had managed to stay sane.
1: Had, were able to talk with me about it, and um, and people who had suffered so much and yet retained their dignity and, and had this, their life had been a kind of struggle to um, maintain their dignity. And um, that, I think, is really, you know, it gives you an idea of how you should live your own life but, um, and how to be prepared, too, for something much worse. Um, so i felt like i um learned a lot not just about sort of facts of history or particular stories about what happened in the past too but um about um how to cope um with these kinds of of um
2: terrible experiences and the um the other thing is I really do, well, I it this way, I didn't plan
1: on spending this much time on this research. <laughs> and so um, right now I do feel like doing something else. Um, and I'm thinking about working on the Constituante, the Const- Constitutional Assembly in Indonesia. It was from 1956 to 1959. And which is more about the, the, a time of debates, a time of discussions, not about uh, the violence. And so I do sort of want to get away from just writing about violence for a while. I, I, I think what I've written about is sort of I've lived with it long
0: enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's the plan. Yeah, yeah. Um well we look forward to seeing that work. I'm sure that will be fascinating and crank out that book. We'll get you back on the podcast. But um b- before we let you go, um could you suggest two books for the listeners that um re- related to the subject as thematically or geographically with Indonesia that you strongly recommend?
1: Well, I think the um the book by Pramodia Ananta Um, which has been translated as The Mute's Soliloquy. Um, I was thinking about it just recently because it was published in Indonesian first 25 years ago. And um, that was sort of how I got involved in this story too, because I attended the book launch at his house in 1995. And this was Mm -hmm. one of my first times in Indonesia. And um, it really opened up a whole new world uh, for me to become more aware of this experience. Um, It was published in Indonesian in two volumes, um, but the English translation is out as as one, as kind of selection of the different chapters. The the Mm Mutes. Mutes soliloquy, right. And then um, I think the new book by Vincent Bevins, The Jakarta Method is also important, especially as a kind of, um, uh, if read in combination with Buried histories, to provide more of that um, international uh, context as well as uh, the, the uh, sort of international role of the United States in promoting um, the actions of the Indonesian army as worthy of emulation by other armies around the world as
0: a kind of permanent solution to um, communism. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and as luck would have it, uh, on Wednesday, I'll be interviewing uh, Vincent Bevins uh, about the Jakarta Method for this very podcast. So podcast listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> so, John, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been yeah. very nice. And congratulations on a, on a really important book. So this thank has you. been a conversation with John Rusa of the University of British Columbia about his book Buried Histories, The Anti-Communist Massacres of 1965-1966 in Indonesia, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2020. I'm Michael G. Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.